Hello and welcome to episode number 10 of The Wash. I hope you're all doing well. Today I'm going to be talking about five movies that I've watched over the past couple of weeks. And I'm just going to head straight in without any babbling. Here we go. Film number one is 1917 by Sam Mendes. I actually wanted to watch 1917 in the cinema, like really desperately wanted to do it. But I just didn't quite get round to it, despite it seeming like it had a really long run. I watched it about a week and a half ago and unfortunately had to watch it at home for obvious reasons. As well as the film itself seeming to have like a really long run, it also felt like the trailer was playing before films for about three months before 1917 actually came out. To the point where I actually think I probably watched that trailer three times in the cinema alone. I mean it was a really good trailer so I'm not complaining and it inspired me to watch the film but that's still quite a long time. In terms of the storyline, the general plot of 1917 isn't exactly completely new. It's a time-sensitive mission to get to a destination, thus saving a loved one, having travelled through vast amounts of danger and peril. But sameness can't be criticised too much because if we do go in on sameness and that, you know, these storylines being repeated, then you'd have to rip like 70% of books movies off the shelves because we like archetypal stories we've always liked archetypal stories for some reason i don't know what that reason is but that's why most films stick to the same kind of this and then this and then this we lap it up if a film walks the trodden path but walks it well watching said film can still be a thoroughly enjoyable exercise it also helps if the trodden path involves a highly labour and skill intensive method of filmmaking that makes the entire film look like it's just one continuous shot. And it further assists if you have a brilliant emotional and physical performance by George Mackay. Those two things were the things that led me to really enjoy 1917. And watching this film led me to go on something of like a war media binge, which I actually wrote about shameless plug, on my new website, jackandthewash.com. Uh, it's called A Dose of War, and it's about how we can learn from war times in terms of how to deal with our perspective of what's going on right now. There was actually a shameless moment at the end of the film when myself and my girlfriend conferred about when the film was set. Yeah, it's the title. And I mean, mostly this was brought on by the tiredness that comes with it being the end of the day. But it does represent a greater sort of ignorance on my part, especially. Confession time, I don't know enough about either of the world wars, but I would say particularly World War One, And I actually didn't even truly know how it started until I started listening to Dan Carlin's brilliant podcast, Blueprint for Armageddon, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm slowly working my way through that. It's like a six part, probably adds up to like, must be like 30 plus hours of podcasting, but it's just fantastic. The idea for 1917 was actually triggered in Sam Mendes' brain through a conversation that he had with his granddad. And I can say for sure that I'm glad that that conversation happened. I'm glad that Sam Mendes is the filmmaker he is. And I'm glad that Roger Deakins is the fantastic cinematographer that he is. To describe 1917 in the sentence, I would say that it's a thunderously intense, but still sensitive journey through the experience of two men at a time like few other 
at least in our close history. And I recommend it highly, even if just to admire the work of the crew and just the setup of this film. And by all means, check out the behind the scenes clips you can find on YouTube if you, because I watched them and thought, I'm, I'm a very positive person. I look at things and I think, yeah, you know, I really believe that I could do many things if I put my mind to it. But I saw the way they set up and made this film and I just thought to myself, yeah, that's that's exactly the type of thing that might just be a little bit beyond me. Um, yeah, 1917 is highly worth the praise that it's gotten. So the next film up is Togo. And with 1917 there, I just mentioned the repeated narrative of a time-sensitive mission, didn't I? Well, what do you think Togo is about? A time-sensitive mission. <laughs> Watching Togo actually came about a little bit serendipitously as a result of subscribing for the seven-day free trial of uh, Disney Plus, the new streaming service. And interestingly, Togo came out, in fact that there was a whole uh, Twitter thing about this, about similar films coming out at the same time, but Togo came out at the same time as The Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford, which just seemed a bit odd. How does that happen? Um, but it was really interesting, this Twitter thread, because it went into details like you can get the people who were working on the film pitching it to multiple companies and then someone rejecting it and someone taking it up or someone rejecting it and deciding to do it themselves with their own people. Now, I've actually read the book, The Call of the World by Jack London, which, you know, the same titled film is based on. But I can only watch one dog film. And my decision was made when I saw the trailers of the two and The Call of the Wild has this tacky ass CGI looking dog in it. And it just made up my mind for me. So Togo it was. And even though I chose Togo, I was still hesitant about it being an actual good film. It helped that Willem Dafoe was starring in it. Willem Dafoe, who is at this point in time sort of milling about the edges of my favourite actors ever. He's probably just on the precipice of breaking in. Uh, what an honour for him. But yeah, he's, he's around about there. And with each film, he gets closer and closer. And you just look at something like the transformation from doing a sort of lower budget film, uh, Robert Eggers film, with Robert Pattinson. Is it Robert Eggers? I, I've done this in another podcast, I'm sure I have. Jesus, what a silly mistake, but I think it is Robert Eggers. Goes from The Lighthouse, uh, this low-budget kind of stylistic film, to then, you know, a blockbuster film about a dog. Um, you can't really get a more Hollywood film than a film with, a, with an animal as one of the leads. That transformation to me is just a big signal of the ability of this man, but also his willingness to take on different roles and challenge himself consistently. For me, that's what makes a good actor. Choosing good roles, I think that's a big part of being a good actor, is, is not just the actual performance itself, but knowing what is a good role before you take it on. You got someone like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who obviously now he gets offered all of the best roles, but he doesn't seem to make many mistakes. That also applied to Johnny Depp for a while. I feel like he kind of fell off a cliff a bit with that, but we'll let him off. He's had some troubles. In the end, Togo completely won me over. It's not a complicated film, but I've mentioned before, a film doesn't have to be complicated to be considered good. Togo left me with a heart full of dogs and watery eyes and just 
pining for the days when I had my own little Togo. Admittedly, a lot littler than Togo, and maybe a little bit less impressive on some fronts. Uh, but yeah, just wandering around and making me smile all the time. The film is a heartwarming representation of the unique relationship that can develop and exist between animal and human. Um, and this is a film that you can watch and enjoy if you're an adult, if you're a kid. I mean, hell, maybe even plop your dog in front of the screen and see what he or she thinks of it. Film number three is Onward, and Onward is an animated film by Pixar. And when you hear those two words together, animated and Pixar, you usually know that you're in for a treat. It's tough to know whether this is based on my own sheltered existence or whether it's an actual fact, but it seemed to me that Onward didn't quite get as big a release as you would expect from a film of its sort of size and uh, you know a studio of its sort of grandeur. In Onward, Tom Holland and Chris Pratt play two brothers who are living in a world that was supposedly once upon a time filled with magic but has become far more plain. And the other thing that's missing from this world is their pops, their old man, who has passed away. The two of them then attempt to bring their dad back through the means of a magic spell. But obviously it's not gonna be that easy. They screw it up and they end up with just their legs, of, sorry, the legs of their dad. And if they don't get the rest of the spell completed within the next 24 hours, then they won't get to see their dad as they wanted to and speak to him. Now, does that sound familiar to you in any way? It sounds a little bit like that's a time sensitive mission, doesn't it? to be reunited with a loved one, or to save a loved one. Hmm, convenient. I didn't actually pick these films because of this, it just kind of happened to come up as a theme as I was going through them. I mean, it's gonna happen. I'm sure you could watch five films randomly and they all have really similar plots, especially if you're watching action films, which are just like, that's why action films in particular don't tend to blow people away so much because you're relying on the making of the film being fantastic rather than the plot surprising you because action films generally follow the same plot all the time. Not digging on them, I love a good action film. I love John Wick. Um, Mission Impossible is another example of action films that do it well, the Bourne films, but you know what I'm saying. Cliches aside, my first thought when watching Onward was just how beautiful the animation was. I mean, we've all come to expect this high quality animation now, and we don't really give animators the credit they deserve, but like the colors in this film right at the beginning, I was just, it's, you know, every now and then, it's like when you're trying to, you're trying to lose weight or something, or you're trying to get into better shape, you don't notice it as it's sort of incrementally getting better as you're getting into better shape, as you're dropping weight off. But then all of a sudden you look in the mirror and bam, like where the hell, where the hell did those love handles go? I say that now, but I've got some love handles <laughs> right at this moment. Uh, but same with sort of technological improvement, I guess. You don't really realise until one of those moments five years down the line when you look at like an old Motorola or something, or you look at those big brick phones, you see the improvement of thing, things. The other thing that stood out for me about the film is that it covered male relationships in a really sensitive manner. And I feel like nowadays we're so prone to hearing about male privilege and toxic masculinity. And sometimes I worry that A, 
those sort of stereotypes and accusations can be really damaging, but also that, you know, in some cases they might become self-fulfilling, especially if men are constantly told how bad they are all the time. Like if you're given a label, that can be self-fulfilling. It, it happens. As these stereotypes become more prominent, it seems like stories of male bonding are becoming more and more rare. Stories about the beautiful relationships that men can have with each other as fathers, brothers and sons. I like that Onward ventured through this territory and that it did so with poise and with care. And as well as having a good, nice message lying within, Onward would also give you a couple of laughs as well as it did me. The fourth film that I'm going to be talking about today is Baccarat. And Baccarat is a Brazilian film that won the Jury Prize at the Cannes Festival. Baccarat is about a small town in Brazil that all of a sudden seems to be under some kind of attack from the outside. And it's about how the community of Baccarat deal with that problem. Part of the appeal for me watching Baccarat is that I'm currently learning Portuguese. I have been for a while now. And it's really nice to use things like TV and movies to assist with that process. Of course, though, I still watch the film with subtitles on because I ain't that great. And just people in different languages speak too fast, man. I mean, everyone says that about English people as well. But it is that is the experience you have when you learn in another language. I've, I've got podcasts that I listen to in Portuguese and I drop the speed right down to the point where they sound like monsters. <laughs> the beginning of Baccarat really made me long for like a close-knit community, like the one in this town, but also like the, the colours, the yellows and the greens and obviously the blue sky of Brazil just made me long so much to return. Something that I noticed throughout the film that was done really well was this contrast of volume. So there was one scene where it went quite quickly from really loud music to just the sound of handkerchiefs blowing in the wind, just like the the ruffle. <laughs> when I wrote that down, I had the word Russell in my head and I was like, Russell is just not right. Russell's just not quite right for a handkerchief. A handkerchief doesn't rustle. And then all of a sudden, ruffle just popped into my head and I was so happy with myself because it feels like they're they're cousins in, in the word game, Russell and Ruffle, but they're the sounds of two very, very slightly different things. A Russell, I guess, is like, whoosh, whoosh, and a Ruffle is like, whoosh. oh, what am I on about? But yeah, the handkerchiefs ruffle straight after this loud music, uh, that and the slight sound of wind. And it's just, it's lovely. Silence is made more... I guess, noticeable, noticeable and enjoyable, often in real life, by its contrast with loud noise. I later on noticed another great application of this contrast of volume where they went from, slightly different, but they went from uh, electronic music and then to sort of, I guess, like a Brazilian folk or traditional singing. And that was from the modern to the, not old fashioned, but I guess it's more from the, from the, contemporary to the rural if that makes sense don't know my music genre as well enough maybe someone could correct me on that there were definitely some racial undertones in this film but i'm not sure that it was quite as blunt as that i think there was there were questions around the topic of race but i think maybe i mean i could just be reading into this too much but there felt like there were questions of the relationship between the rural towns 
in Brazil and their counterparts in the big cities. Just as a general comment though, man, this film is intense as fuck. My favourite scene in the whole film was this moment where you had a bunch of kids playing in the evening and you had like the juxtaposition of the innocence, the youth and the lightness of these children opposed with just the sheer darkness of the night and darkness in a rural area, darkness in the countryside or a small town is just a completely different beast to darkness in the city. Outside of the city, darkness feels like it has no end and it's so much more intimidating and full and fucking scary, man. <laughs> Overall, Baccarat was a deeply unsettling film, but I thought it was wonderful. And when a film shocks and surprises me to a great extent, I laugh out loud in delight. Even on my own, Baccarat just had me like, cackling. <laughs> the biggest theme that popped out of this film for me was community and in Baccarat the importance of community runs deep. The town's dynamic evolves to fit their pressing needs and in many ways I would say that Baccarat as a town is anti-fragile. I think also the sense of community in terms of like a filmmaking point of view was helped by what I would adjudge to be an ensemble cast. I'm not too clued in as to casting and how it works and the ins and outs of it, but this felt like it was an ensemble cast. There weren't any real main roles. I didn't feel like there were any leads. Though I would say I particularly liked uh, the character of Lunga, who only came in like halfway through, played by Silvero Pereira. Overall, I'd actually say that Baccarat is one of my favourite films of the past few years, and not gonna lie, I wasn't expecting that going into it. I thought it might be a bit arty and, and you know, a bit knobby, but it just it just wasn't. It blew me away. It was a brilliant film and I really highly recommend you check it out. Finally, the fifth film that I'm gonna talk about is Hustlers. And I'd heard that Hustlers was brilliant, I heard that it was really good, but I was still hesitant. And the reason why is the following. I don't like when people use sex to sell shit. It's a cheap trick. And of course, I'm not stupid. I know that most advertising kind of taps into the subconscious desires of the human psyche in some manipulative way. But there's something about people using sex to sell things that aren't sex anyway. It just feels like a cheat, like a cheat play. And that's what I thought Hustlers was gonna be. I thought it was going to be a shallow storyline propped up by consistent nudity to keep people interested. And really, it wasn't that at all. So shame on me for judging it by its cover so strongly. I really like the storyline of Hustlers in the end. And in terms of performances, I thought Jennifer Lopez and particularly Constance Wu were absolutely brilliant in it. It's odd. For some reason, seeing men being taken advantage of and treated really badly whilst sort of super drunk or incapacitated doesn't have the same connotation as it happening the other way around. And there's probably a much deeper, maybe even problematic psychological reason to this or societal reason to this. But I sadistically enjoyed watching all of these characters taking advantage and almost serving vengeance upon the Wall Street bankers who 
you know, in, in the in the film they represented the Wall Street bankers who did so much damage to the global society. Hustlers in the end is a really fun film. There were a few moments when it made some questionable stylistic choices, just felt a little bit like they were out of nowhere. But other than that, it's a really fun flick. And what I would say to you is don't be like me. Don't jump to conclusions and let yourself be put off by what you're expecting it to be because it's not that it's a good film it's got a nice storyline and i think you'll probably enjoy it that is all five films for this episode of the wash and it's been episode number 10 i guess a milestone or something for me probably like the longest i've gone on one of these creative journeys uh, in terms of videos anyway i think 10 is probably more videos than when i was just making videos on youtube before so i guess i'm quite proud of that um, in terms of listening to this podcast, you can listen on Spotify. I mean, I'm literally telling someone who has listened or is listening or watching the podcast where they can watch or listen. So it seems really counterintuitive, but you can listen to this podcast on Spotify if you're watching it on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube if you listen on Spotify. But the home for the podcast is jackandthewash.com. Um, if you want to skip the homepage, jackandthewash.com slash the watch. If you haven't already checked out my website, I would really encourage you to do so and see some of the writing on there that I've done. There's probably about 50 odd writing pieces up there, 50 odd article-like features. Some of them are longer than others, some of them go delve deeper than others, and some of them are just quick tips and tricks for things. I've also got some recommendations on there, like film recommendations, book recommendations. Yeah, check it out if you haven't already and let me know what you think. Serve me with a strong batch of criticism. That's been episode number 10 of The Wash. Thank you and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.